In the great green room, there was a telephone, and a red balloon, and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. And there were three little bears sitting on chairs, and two little kittens, and a pair of mittens, and a little toy house, and a young mouse, and a comb, and a brush, and a bowl full of mush, and a quiet old lady who was whispering, Hush. Welcome to A Thousand and One Good Nights, a new podcast about the stories behind bedtime stories. Turn the pages with two new dads, one a psychologist and one a book editor, as they try to understand the nighttime ritual of their foreseeable future. Ben. Hello. Oh, hey, Nick. <laughs> I would love to talk about Goodnight Moon today. Oh, let's do it. Um, so this is, um, there's a reason this was sort of a, a, the foundational member of the soothing benedictions, nighttime benedictions section of our uh, Goodnight's Guide, because it is so lulling. I feel like this is the, mm. we, I, we've talked a lot about, you know, the, sort of foundational children's books. And this is kind of the, the form of like the read a book to a kid before bed. Yeah. Like story. Like it's, it, it, and it's, it, it's one of the books that sort of, I think changed over the, the material of, uh, um, from, you know, fairy tales or things out in the world and located it with the familiar things in a bedroom, you know? And so it's about the act of going to sleep. Yeah, it's very child centered, right? And 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 not just and, and it, it's it, it, and not just child centered, but just very like child going to bed centered. Um, <laughs> it's getting so, meta here early. Right? In the 20th yeah, no, century. it is. Well, I mean, it's a very meta book. There's I don't know if you've if you've ever noticed, but on one of the on one of the pages where you've got the the bunny knitting, and there's a bookshelf uh, behind her, and one of the the books on the bookshelf is like uh, Runaway Bunny. Oh, and it's, I did and not notice it, that. And it's Runaway Bunny by Margaret Wise Brown right. and and the Clement Hurd, you know, uh, who's the illustrator. So, I mean, it's it's a you know for such a sparse, uh, simple book, there's a it's it can be pretty self referential. Oh, and, and then on, on the desk is Goodnight Moon. Right. Yeah. The... So. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. Inception. So, We're getting real. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it has kind of that quality. I mean, where there's the, the you know there's the. The, the kind of the alternating black and white and the colors. I mean, there is this, like, there is like a real dreamlike quality to it. Um, and how it slowly gets darker, like the right. the colors slowly get darker over the court. Yeah, very, uh, very soothing too. I yeah. Find. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, so this is, I think we, we, we talked about uh, like how, even though we love where the wild things are, sometimes the rhythm of it can kind of throw you. This is maybe the most soothing book that I've ever encountered. Just even, like the it just the the litany of uh good it's like a little lullaby almost um just kind of the way that you and you intone it and i think that's obviously pretty deliberate uh the, the author margaret wise brown spent some time in the bank street uh cooperative school uh and for student teachers and one of the things they did was it was this sort of nursery laboratory environment and teachers and psychologists were encouraged to listen to the way that 
little kids talked and the rhythms of their speech and kind of the, the semantics of, of how they communicated. And one of the things they noticed were that um, the communication isn't necessarily the, the, the earliest impulse that leads to language. It's that a lot of kid, young kids are more interested in rhythm and sound quality and, and sound patterns. And so that they're not just, when, when they're vocalizing or making noises, they're not just interested in the content or, you know, what, what they're saying, but how it sounds and as a sensory experience. And that certainly carries over to the, to the book. Um, so let, let, let me, so if, if this is kind of the form of, of, a the, you know, read a child to bed story, like you're, you're soothing them to sleep. Let, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Like, do you, do you find that your, your children sleep better, um, after a book is read to them or, I mean, what's, what's the reason, reason that reading is sort of a, a nighttime ritual or that it's part of a bedtime routine in the first place? I don't, so it's a hard question to ask because we always read to our kids before bed. Like, I don't know right. that we ever don't. Um, so that would be an interesting experiment to see what happens. I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there are times, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I mean, I mean be, uh, <laughs> don't, don't, don't ruin everything for the sake of <laughs> <laughs> that's one of good night's podcast. Um, so like there's obvious things like kids are relatively still when you're, you know, lying on bed or sitting on the couch reading a book um, as opposed to physically. So you're physically sort of unwinding them a little bit by having them just sort of sit still and look at the book. Um, but then you are also, at least with a lot of books, you're introducing this kind of uh, like rhythmic um, sort of auditory quality that often, I mean, even for adults helps put us to sleep. Like when you're on, a lot of people find um, certain sort of uh, rhythmic patterns to be kind of sleep inducing, right? White do, you, do, do you listen to like a white noise machine or do you read before bed or you know, do, you, do, you, do you have your own uh, like bedtime routine that, that involves like literature or noises or anything like that? So no, um, w no white noise machines. Um, we always, my wife and I, almost always in the evenings will re like, I don't know if we put the kids down to bed at uh, 7.30 or by eight, we'll kind of, we'll read for maybe like an hour from like eight to nine. And then we'll usually watch like an episode of a, like a rerun of a sitcom or something. Um, and then we'll get to bed. Um, so there, there is this kind of um, reading literary kind of uh, phase before bed. And then sometimes I will read, um, on my phone actually so that the iphone books app has a nice like dark mode so if you have uh, uh ebooks installed on that you can read and so i i love sherlock holmes so i will often just get into bed and pull up sherlock holmes and i'll get like a page or two into it and then i'll just pass out it's almost become like an association for fall asleep like as soon yeah. as i pull it which i actually i i kind of enjoy so that's i, I think there definitely is something to, to get back to your original question something about um, literature and reading as sort of a calming, like pre-sleep stage. I mean, and the other thing too, is you're getting into, there's this weird link between, um, you know, sleep. We often associate sleep with dreaming, right? You dream, right. you kind of go I was into gonna like say, Is that, in other words, is it, is bedtime literature, is it meant to be a sedative or is it like dream fodder? Like let's give the subconscious <laughs> something to really work on. And then these kids are going to wake up talking about bowls of mush and you know, like <laughs> cows jumping over the moon and kind of working on things. I don't, I don't know. I, I think as far as the, the dreaming aspect goes, I think that's pretty, that's a pretty hard thing to control. I mean, there, there is some evidence that 
if you are something you kind of think a lot about during the day at least and perhaps even right before bed is slightly more likely to end up in your dreams but i don't think to the extent that you can really kind of implant a lot of uh you know, information deliberately right before bed so that it gets worked on or processed or something. Um, so you're not like, if, if you're listening to scary stories, you watch a scary movie before bed, you're not more likely to have nightmares than if you saw it at say like 1 PM, like in the, like a, <laughs> a, a matinee, like a matinee horror movies, less uh, nightmare in, inducing than, than so, one that you watch. I mean, I guess it could be if you watch Nightmare and you got really all of a sudden you're super stimulated before bed, um, you're all anxious and terrified and upset. Obviously, it's going to make it harder to go to sleep um, and your rest could be more fitful. But in terms of dreaming, it's a pretty unpredictable thing. So I, I don't and I think also like a lot of individual difference. I, I think different people are just differently affected by stuff. So I don't know about that, but I, I think I'm more interested in the, how does the act of reading before bed sort of <laughs> selfishly, how does that get my kids to shut up and go to sleep <laughs> right. at 7.30 PM? Um, and I, I don't know. I think it definitely does. What, what about you guys? Do you, do you guys have some sort of a regular bed night yeah, we, ritual? You know, we, yeah. And, and now we're in the, Jack has just kind of reached the point or he's been there a, a, maybe a, a, a little while now where first of all, he in some ways dreads reading a book because he knows that signaling right. going to bed. Um, but then once you start reading, he also knows that uh, he, the more books that he asks for, you know, one more book or, you know, read it one more time that can delay, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. delay going to bed. So it's this bizarre thing where he, he doesn't want to read a book, and then he's like, "Well, if you don't want to read a book, I guess we'll go to Vegas." No, no, no. I, actually, let's. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> I change my mind. I, I do want to read not one, but like fifteen books. Right. You know. So, um, yeah, and I think it is. I mean, there is. Then there is something um, uh, calming about it for, and 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 really sweet about making kind of carving that t time out in a way that isn't just uh, okay now. Is it just utilitarian, if that makes sense? I mean, and, and, I, and I work for home, so I see my my kids a lot. But a lot of times it's like if I'm interacting with them, it's, well, you know, let's let's change this diaper or change, you know, get you into these clothes or get you set up for this activity or, you know, do this or that. And it's not we're we're both sitting in a chair. We're, we're kind of in contact deliberately. And it's not that it's just entertainment, but we're we're learning together or we're experiencing this thing together in, in kind of a it's a different mode of activity, you know, than just brush your teeth and like, you know, I'm gonna oversee you, like prepping you for, you know, the stages of your day. Yeah, the fact that it's I mean it, it I think all of us would be kind of a little bit upset if we really stopped and think about how how rare it is to have really slow, intentional times with our kids or like as a family. Um and so for me, I think bedtime stories provides, if you can get in the habit of it, provides like a built-in way to make sure you get at least some of that. Almost like, you know, like family dinners. Like a, a big reason people find that really important is that it sort of gives you structure to have that um, intimate kind of slowed down intentional time um, with important people. So I, yeah, I think I think bedtimes are, are really helpful for that. Is it sort of the essential, non-essential time, you know, where you're, where you're just yeah. in you... Right. can kind of, you know, focus on the, the other person, and especially, and maybe we'll talk about this, you know, as we go on, but it's, especially if you've read the, uh, a book so many times, like, are you, are you still engaged at that point in, in the book? Or are you, I feel like it's also, you're also kind of studying your kid, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you're, and you're really just, you're just very aware of them. And so for me, a lot of times the book is, 
I mean, sometimes new, like I'll, I'll notice new details. Like I, I kind of recently noticed in the good night moon, uh, you know, above that bookshelf, there's a rabbit fishing for another rabbit. So oh. like, like, so that's yeah. <laughs> like cannibalism. I don't, I don't know what's going on there. So that I, I missed that the first time, but, or the first 30 times or, you know, whatever it was. But, um, but in general, like I'm pretty familiar with it, but I feel like it's not the same for Jack. Like he is very much like learning new things each time and putting things together and, and, and having different, he's coming at, he, you know, he's arriving at, uh, the book equipped with a greater degree of knowledge than he was before. You know, now, maybe now he's, maybe now he's used a comb for the first time or something, you know, something like that where he knows what that is and we can kind of talk about it. And so it's, it's, I'm, I'm sort of studying him, but he's really like waiting to unleash like a, an improved brain with, you know, with, with each, you know, reading of the book. So that, that's kind of, that's kind of fun. It also reminds me a lot of, um, in developmental psychology, there's this period when kids are, it's kind of like the top, it's usually around toddlerhood before kind of elementary school where the way kids play together, it, it's called parallel play where kids, they want to be, they want to play with other kids, but not actively with them. They just want to be around them, like next to each other, kind of doing their own thing. And I think that's a really neat like metaphor for what happens in, um, in bedtime stories before bed is that you, you're sort of like, it's this parallel, like you are engaged with your kid. You're not having a conversation with them or actively like doing something together, but you're sort of both engage in a parallel way on the same thing. And I think that's a really, I think that's an important like mode of activity, not just as toddlers, but I think we all, I don't know. I feel like I like that a lot, even as an adult, that, that kind of being with someone in parallel kind of engaged on a, a mutual task, but um, yeah, just being kind of present together. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, I mean, really the, the word I think of is you know, companionship. Like you, there's that, you're, you're, there's that sense of like, you're really, and that's why you, you, when people talk about companionable silences, even where you're, you're sort of present, but you're, there, there's that you're sharing space in sort of a different way than the way you share space with somebody that's on a, on a, you know, commuting on a train or something. Yeah. Like and you're that. sharing all sorts of the space you're sharing feelings you're sharing. I mean, you're, you're going through often with a book, you're going like on a journey together through this, through some story in another book, um, which is a, I don't know. It's a really cool thing. Good night, comb, and good night, brush. Good night, nobody. Good night, mush. And good night to the old lady whispering hush. Now that we've reaffirmed that, that reading bedtime stories is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it only took two seasons. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we've sort of established that this is, I mean, it, I feel like this, this can, this soothes me down if I, if I were just to read it in the middle of the day. So it, it's a, it's, it's a powerfully crafted, like, uh, like soothing lullaby benediction sort of thing. But, can we can we talk a little bit about the the color scheme of the, of the book? And like sometimes I feel, and some of you think about this. Sometimes I feel like it, it's very easy to make fun of children's books sometimes, and it, it's kind of an an easy target, low hanging fruit sort of thing. And it's like, why are you going to be a spoil sport? 
and make fun of <laughs> beloved classics. <laughs> you know, like this is they're just trying to be sweet and like you know communicate these things to children. Like of, it's it's like kind of the person that. Like, you know, the kid in your class that was always like making the your mom jokes like, yeah, you can make you can make that into a your mom if you want to. But why would you want to ruin it for why would you want to do that? But that being said, like there is some like Good Night Moon is an especially easy target in some ways. Like the, the color scheme, I don't know if it's just our our modern palette, if it's like a d- different. But I think I don't know. What, what, what do you think about this? I feel like you have strong aesthetic opinions about stuff like that. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously it's hideous, right? It's just like green, <laughs> green, like this, like forest green walls, bright red carpet, kind of striped yellow and green window shades. I mean, it's yeah, it's just a disaster. But well, it's one of those. I, I will say, I don't know. We uh, one of my favorite uh, blogs is the Ugly Volvo blog, and she do, she does sort of a a breakdown of the of you know of of the 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 visuals of Good Night Moon. And one of the funniest things that she does is she imagines this conversation between the, the interior decorators. <laughs> of the, really, really funny. But the, she says she compares the color scheme to exploded paint factory. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, go on. So yeah, we, I mean, we could sit here and, and uh, you know and and riff on how awful the the color scheme is. But here's what I thought I'd do is here's my case for um, why it's appropriate and probably even intentional. Um, so if we, as we talked about before, the, one of the ways this book works is it it literally helps soothe a kid to sleep, right? And so it's I think we could talk about how the color scheme and especially the the change in the appearance of the color scheme how over the course of the book that's sort of reflecting what's you know hypothetically happening to our kids as we read stories before bed which is in the beginning all the colors are in like full luminosity just very bright vivid and way overstimulating you know just like they hurt your eyes there's it's it's so much but then as the story goes it first of all it alternates between color in black and white right which is sort of like when at least with my kids when we're reading especially when we first start reading um you can see their activity level kind of shifting back and forth between wanting to be you know jump up and down and be super active and then want like yawning and kind of like wanting to relax um well so let me ask you this where where do you where do you read uh do you have like a set place where you read children's books or are they in bed or like we have like a little reading nook, like chairs, and it's a kind of Jack will march over there, and <laughs> it's where the bookshelf is, and it, and, that, and that's part of the ritual too. Like he'll he'll pick the, he'll pick a book out. So it's usually it's usually cars and trucks and things that go. <laughs> like, but right. what, what, so what? How do you stage like a bedtime story? So it used to be up until a few months ago, we used to read in the living room on the couch, all all four of us, um, which is where you know where the bookshelves are and all, all the books are. But we we decided to shift it up. Um, and in part because the living room was a little, we don't have a nook. So the living room was just a bit over. It was too easy for them to kind of hop off the couch and start running around in the middle of a book. <laughs> sure. So, <laughs> so we shifted to um, Elena's room and she has a bit like a, she's sleeping in a, a full size bed these days. Just a, um, it, it used to be kind of a guest bedroom. Um, and she's, so she's in a regular bed. So it can hold all of us. So we all just sort of like pile into her room on the big bed um, we, we shut off the main lights and just have like a little lamp light. So we sort of set the, set the mood that way. And then there being on the bed kind of feel like it, we start reading closer to sleep, um, is sort of the way we have set it up. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's that. That's I'm, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I've got a good sense. No, so go on. <laughs> well, yeah. So I think the book. So it alternates between kind of black and white, one kind of stimulating and one much more mellow. But then also um, the the lighting changes as the story goes on, right? So it gets darker and darker to the point where the last the last page is very dark. All you all you see are the only bright things are kind of the moon and the stars, the the fire, and then the the lights in the toy house are still on. <laughs> so the the mouse or somebody is still up, um, but it's very very dark and muted. Um, which again, theoretically, that's the process that our our kids kind of go on. They're, they're almost sleeping by the time we finish. Yeah, books. and I kind of think to, to me it's so. First of all, obviously the the it's you start off and you you name all the different objects in the room, and then the way the, the plot such as it is works is then you wish each of those objects and even nothing you, 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 you wish nothing good night. Right. You wish all that. So it's in some ways you don't have to strain to figure you, you already, it's already a familiar world. So you're not, you're, you're reviewing stuff you already know. So that's soothing. And for me, almost at the, the black and white sections, it's almost like when your eyelids are kind of fluttering and they, oh. there's that, it's, it's, it's that kind of like, you're drift, you're, you're kind of drowsing and you're, you're kind of dipping below and, and the world becomes, and then you can, you kind of, and then you, your eyelids flutter open and again, but the room's a right. little bit darker than it was before. Yes. And then eventually, you know, you're, you're asleep. Uh huh. I, yeah. I like dra- the, the book in a word is sort of like drowsing. You're starting to, to get sleepy. Okay, but here, okay. Here's the, the non-interpretive interpretation of this. What if I remember reading some, and you can, I'm sure you can comment on this being in the industry, but I heard somewhere that at least back in the day, they often would do a mixture of color and black and white pages to save money because color yeah. was more expensive to print color. So what if it's just that? What if they're just kind of cheaping out? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I have to, I don't know enough about what the process, I, I know that that's true. I mean, it, it's weird because the way that- <laughs> Not uh, to throw cold water on this whole no, thing. No, no, <laughs> yeah, no. Well, it can, I mean, it can be both and, and really, you know, really well-designed things. It's, it's you know, four-man function. So, but- uh also, it would kind of depend on like how the signatures work, and I don't know enough about how they made board books in the 1940s to kind of know how much. I mean, certainly that it, it, it's cheaper to you to, to print things in in black and white than it is in color. That's that's still true today, but I don't know. I don't know how much of that. Maybe maybe or it may, it, sure, surely that surely that was uh, if they could save money by doing it, that was an unexpected bonus. Right. <laughs> so. right. <laughs> um. So yeah, I think I think the the garishness of the colors in the beginning, it's intense, but it it serves to to contrast the the process that the book is getting at, which is falling asleep. It makes the the ending wouldn't be so calming if you didn't start from such a overstimulating place. Right. That's my that's how I read the the color scheme as being intentional in the beginning. So, so they, but they had, they had a mean like, okay, name your, your, the five most garish colors you can yeah. think of. Like, let's, you know, let's a lot, get of, a lot of focus groups on this. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Would you, do you, do you, agree, that, you think that makes sense to me or like, I, I feel like we're gonna, that, that makes sense as a theory, but then maybe one day we, we tour Margaret Wise Brown's uh, apartment and it's th- those same colors. Those colors. She just loves <laughs> just, love, just sort of tomato soup. 
<laughs> like to, to, like for for rugs and and you know that, that that sort of thing. That's just she just she loved and she loved stripes, different kinds of competing stripes. <laughs> I would love to. I am interested by the idea though of trends in color schemes as represented by children's books. I think we should get at some point we need to get a an illustrator or someone else in publishing on to maybe talk about that oh, topic yeah, because definitely. Well, and, and something else that is is worth mentioning is a lot of times these. Uh, it, once again, not to throw cold water on on stuff, but sometimes it's the limitations of the illustrator too. So I, I think for this one, uh, heard the illustrator was better at drawing bunnies than people, and so that's one of the reasons that there's bunnies. I mean, and, and it, you know, and if, if I, that that's kind of where the wild things are, I feel like he was. That's kind of how that worked. A lot of times, like, well, I can. You know, I, I don't know if it's like I can only draw in red. <laughs> like that's, but I mean, just in terms of kind of the, the look and the aesthetic, sometimes it's. Well, you know, so that's a good point. I, I, and actually, this season is is good to bring this topic up. But one thing you, I often have noticed in children's book is, um, adults are deliberately sort of removed or truncated from yeah. figures. So, like in where the wild things are, the mom's not there at all. In the cat in the hat, all you see is the mom's like leg at the end of it. Right. Um, and it's even something like in a, in a Toy Story, in the movie Toy Story. Right. Adults are noticeably, you, you see legs or you know, voices, but you don't actually see the parent themselves. So I wonder if that's also sort of aesthetically intentional, like something about, um, it, is it more absorbing for the kid if they realize from the get-go this is a book about kids and like it's finally a, a reprieve from all these adults like telling me what to do right. all day? Maybe, yeah. And, and she was certainly... I mean, when when she was coming out with these books, she originally got pushback because she was deliberately choosing these settings of like, you know, in children's bedrooms and not, you know, people thought that they were, I don't know, that it wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be stimulating enough for children because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't out in the woods fighting monsters or telling these adventures. And so, you know, the, the, she, her, her critics, when, when she was criticized, they, they, they said, why are you? you know, why are you setting these things like in the children's world? So she was, so yeah. I mean, I think that there's, there's a deliberateness to that. I mean, she, she's pretty famous for, I mean, she, once again, for such a simple book, she spends a lot of time on, I think she says something like she, you know, she finishes the the rough draft in 20 minutes and then she spends two years polishing it. So she would always have a bunch of different projects sort of in play and then she's honing it and figuring out exactly what, what she wants it to be. So yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I think I, I, I don't, I don't think that um, that the, the per, sort of the children's perspective is, is accidental. Right. What do you make of its, um, timelessness? Like the fact that it's still kind of a classic and I, I've talked to a lot of people who their kids love it and it's not like we, the parents were pushy about it. They just sort of inherited it as a book and kids were drawn to it. So they're, to me, they're, I, I feel like it's gotta be, and we talked about this with where the wild things are, but there's gotta be more than just historical accent to that. Um, there's got to be something pretty intrinsically appealing, right? Yeah, and especially because the the room is, I mean, uh, I mean, the, the items in the room are very dated, like that <laughs> that sort of black uh, madman style phone <laughs> by by the bed. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, or the even like the clock. I mean, it, it doesn't. You can tell it's a children's bedroom, but like just like the the little like drying rack with mittens and the fireplace, it, it doesn't look like. My kid's bedroom. <laughs> no, it's, it's let's, 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 sort let's of Victorian that. and like. But I mean, part of it I think is, it really is the rhythm. I mean, the, the rhythm of the of 
of the uh, at the language. Yeah. Like I, and I kind of wonder, like, even if you, like, how how this does in other when when, it, when it's translated, oh, how, yeah. how it's you know in Spanish or or, or something like that. But I, I kind of think that, I mean, I think you could you could record somebody reading Goodnight Moon, just like you can. So growing up, we had these uh, uh, the CD of Global Lullabies, hmm. and they're great. And I think it's one of those things where even if you don't understand, and it's, you know, songs in Japanese and Spanish, and even if you don't, you can, you can, you know what's going on. Right. And there's that kind of universe, the, the universal language of the lullaby is very much, I think, pre- present, like in the cadence of the, of the book, just the, the way it flows. And would you call, so I, would you call the text in Good Night Moon uh, verse or prose? Oh, I think it's what kind of a twin. Well, yeah, I mean, well, it's ver- I mean, things rhyme. I mean, you know, good night bears, good night chairs. I mean, it has that. I I would say it's. I think of it as prose, but I guess it's verse. I mean, I, you know, there's otherwise, um, like there's no reason to have the bowl of mush in there if not to rhyme with hush. I mean, it's, <laughs> like, it's, so. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's it, and it's it's a little strange because um, the way usually you think of of uh versus being like you know it's first because you see a stanza of it and you can kind of see that it's arranged differently and this has all the lines typically isolated one to a page and so you it's hard to think of it as part of a, a poem in that way because it's you know all the parts are separated out but but i think i think it is i think it you know it's 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 it, yeah, it, it's got a rhyme scheme it's got a rhythm yeah it's it's, it's verse it's also i think just one one sentence long right I don't think it even has a period at the end. I think yeah, there's I a dash think, in there somewhere, but not, not a lot of punctuation. Not a lot of punctuation. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's kind of the genius of it is that the the rhythm, the meter of it, punctuates right. itself, and the, that's the right. pages give you the right. punctuation. The pauses, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, what what do you so? What is the most uh, soothing part of this very soothing book for you? Is there something that you really like? Your 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 voice softens the most <laughs> when, when when you say it. I feel like the weird climax, like anti-climax of this book is good night, nobody, good night, mush. To me, yeah. that's like, it's like the high low point of the book. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the, it's the, it is the climax, but it's also, to me, it's the most calming, like, ah, part of the book. Yeah. And, and once again, if we're going to do kind of a, if we were to say this is a kind of a creepy book that the good night nobody is like a, a weird, <laughs> there's a weirdness there i was like good night nobody you know? <laughs> but yeah no i i agree i think that's 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 the that is kind of the, the climactic moment of the book i think my favorite part is the very end when it says good night noises everywhere just the fact that and then and then it it it's true to form then like the, the book is over there's no more noises and just the, I, I i like the the activity of wishing everything good night, mm-hmm. um, and then finally noise itself ceases. I think oh, it's, it's it's really really pleasing. It's almost got like a prayer like quality to it yeah. too. You know, kind of like a litany. Of yeah, no, very, yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's a good one. All right, man. Well, that's <laughs> I got. I feel I I feel kind of ready for bed myself now. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, we hope you enjoyed this episode of A Thousand and One Good Nights. If you want to learn more about this book and other bedtime stories, check out our website at a thousand and one goodnights.com. 
That's 1001goodnights.com. Be sure to sign up for our monthly email newsletter to get updates about upcoming seasons and other new content. Finally, please help us out by rating the show on iTunes. This helps spread the word about the show and get it in front of new listeners each week.